This episode is dedicated to all the clinical trial volunteers that risk their health to give us the vaccines. That would be the fastest we've ever gone from obtaining the sequence to being able to do a phase one trial. This has been now 65 days, which I believe is the record. If you think back to the first time you heard that a vaccine was being developed for the mysterious coronavirus, do you remember your first thought? I remember mine. It went something like, that's never going to happen anytime soon and maybe irrelevant by the time it does. So, I'll admit, I was a little off, and the last year has indeed given us a lot of surprises, both in the way the virus evolves and also how quickly vaccines have been brought to market. But somehow, at this point, it seems like there are probably going to be more surprises ahead. So in this final episode, I'll try and hash out some last lingering questions that we all have around the vaccines. We'll look at some new data that's been released both for the new and already authorised vaccines, any new things we've learned about safety, efficacy, infection and transmission, and we'll also try and tackle some practical questions that have cropped up during the rollout, like delaying doses and mixing vaccines. Finally, we'll try and look into the future and the plans for vaccinating children and also how our future might look when trying to get back to being a global community. So let's try and get some final answers from the experts on the 10th episode of The COVAX Files, The Last Lingering Questions. So since we looked at all the different vaccines and their clinical trial results in earlier episodes, we have had some new data sets released by Johnson & Johnson and Novavax. Now, we only have press release data for both of these vaccines, and experts are extremely cautious to talk on press release data because it's not the entire data set, and sometimes key information can be missing. But I was able to get some first early impressions. So first up, let's look at Johnson & Johnson's single-dose adenoviral vector vaccine. Now, we already covered the foundations of this vaccine in earlier episodes, so if you need a refresh, go back to episode 4. But looking at their recent results, J&J did their interim analysis on just shy of 44,000 participants and counted 468 cases of symptomatic COVID. Now, this trial was looking at protection against moderate to severe disease, and if you remember, some of the other trials of some of the other vaccines were also looking at mild disease, and this suggests that Johnson & Johnson's trial might actually have more meaningful results since it's the severe disease that we really care about. Now, this is still yet to be confirmed because we are just looking at a press release, but I spoke to Dr. Jeffrey Morris, a professor of biostatistics at the University of Pennsylvania, and he has decades of experience working on clinical trials, so I asked him for some first thoughts. My first thought is, like many people's, that the efficacy numbers weren't as high as what we saw in Moderna and Pfizer where they saw so the efficacy rate for the trial was 72% in the US, US, 66% in Latin America, and 57% in South Africa. And that was 28 days after the vaccination. That gave it an overall efficacy of 66%. The initial thought was disappointment, but I think that that's really an overreaction because those efficacy numbers are quite good. There's a few things that I would like to see when they do finally release the data. One difference is that They looked only at moderate, severe disease, not mild. 
He said he'd be interested to see the breakdown in each group to see how this vaccine really worked on moderate and severe disease. He was also curious about the safety profile. There's not many details in the report, but it looked to me like it's possible that sort of the symptoms that you get when you take the vaccine might be a little bit less than what we saw in the mRNA vaccines, which might not be a long-term concern, but might help in terms of compliance and getting people to be enthusiastic about it. Overall, there are a few data points like the exact time points they measured the efficacy at that weren't quite clear, and the full report will shed more data on the bigger picture. I think that many of us now are looking at the severe outcomes as a very important outcome to to pull out from these trials. That was Dr. Monica Gandhi from UCSF and from last episode. And her main focus on these results was really pulling out how these vaccines are performing on severe disease, hospitalizations and deaths. And on first glance, it looks good pending further data. So the way I th- want to like explain it is actually think of their outcomes in three strata. Let's start with hospitalizations and deaths. It was 100% effective, this vaccine, against that outcome. And that Johnson & Johnson vaccine phase three trial was done in the US, South Africa, and Latin America. So do remember that the South Africa variant is in South Africa, and it was, it was 100% effective against the most severe definition of disease, which is hospitalization and death. Then the second stratum of outcomes was severe cases. And severe cases include the subset of hospitalizations and deaths. And so the vaccine was 85% effective across all three regions against severe cases. And the interesting thing about severe cases, and this is what we need to see a full report on, is, believe me, if you're being followed in a vaccine trial, you are going to get hospitalized if you are sick. So that severe cases definition included your oxygen saturation going down below 93%. For some context, normal oxygen saturation levels are between 95 and 100%. And so a severe case could be that you were 92% in your oxygen saturation for a day or for even an hour, and that would still be called a severe case. So again, 100% effective against whatever made you so sick that a hospital had to admit you. And then finally, the third stratum of outcomes was moderate disease. And moderate disease was defined in a number of ways, but by definition, it does not include the subset of hospitalization. So all of this can be managed at home. So the efficacy against moderate disease were those percentages mentioned earlier that gave the overall efficacy of 66%. But Dr. Gandhi said that it wasn't exactly clear how moderate disease was defined, and there are questions around whether this vaccine might block you from getting very sick, but still put you at more risk in getting mild disease. That we have to see the data for to understand that. What are the definitions of moderate disease? Because the press release did not give us enough nuance on that. And also the next thing we have to understand is regular swabbing after these vaccines are administered to ensure that asymptomatic infection is also decreased. There's biological plausibility to believe that, but it feels like we're, we're, it's hard to make utter conclusions until the data is fully out. We've never had a time in history where we're watching these vaccine trials so closely and so yeah. much of the public knows about it, but we, so we need more data. I spoke to Dr. Gayani Thilakaratna, an infectious diseases physician and associate professor at Duke University. She was actually a co-investigator on both the Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca trials in the US, meaning she was on the ground administering the vaccine in clinical trials. 
So I think overall the results looked pretty promising. When these vaccines were all being developed, we were hoping for efficacy of 50% or greater because we just weren't sure how efficacious these vaccines could be. So I think the fact that the efficacy seems to be in the 60s is not disappointing. One of the main factors we look at, so the hospitalizations and deaths, the fact that it was 100% effective at preventing that, I think that is also quite promising. And this is also a vaccine that has had a lot of hope from a global standpoint, just because it's one shot and it's an adenoviral vector. So it can be stored at refrigeration temperatures for months. So I think given all of that in general, the results look promising. The kinds of things I would like to see, how many participants were in each of these subgroups that they have mentioned, what are the confidence intervals within those groups. So that seemed to be something that all experts were actually curious about, the breakdowns within the subgroups. And the confidence intervals are really statistics that the regulators will be poring over. And while the experts agree it's difficult to speak intelligently on the press release data, the initial data is trending well for a likely emergency authorization. Switching over to Novavax, now this is the first protein-based vaccine that has reported positive results, a phase three trial in the UK and a phase two B trial in South Africa. Novavax just released a few bits of information and their numbers are smaller. So there's definitely more uncertainty in what we really know at this point. Okay, so a quick snapshot at the data. It showed 89% efficacy in the UK after enrolling over 15,000 participants and they counted 62 cases of either mild, moderate or severe disease. In South Africa, the trial was much smaller. It enrolled 4,400 participants from September to January, right when that nasty variant was running rampant. They counted 29 cases of COVID and 15 of those were in the placebo group, giving it a 60% efficacy rate. Now, these numbers are a lot smaller than all the other trials, which makes it a little bit difficult to evaluate, but experts had some initial thoughts. You know, if you saw the reports earlier in the preclinical and the early clinical data, the biological numbers for Novavax were among the best. So I think that's raised a lot of excitement that when the clinical data comes in that the Novavax might work quite well. But I think the numbers aren't real large. They they don't have even as many details in their report as Johnson & Johnson did. I feel like the Novavax data, I almost feel like it's harder to comment on this particular one until you see the full data set, unlike the others that have enough details to me that feel really positive. So I agree that actually, again, looking at what's important, that the severe outcomes is massively reduced. And actually, you can have these kind of statistical abnormalities when you have smaller groups, but all of it goes in the right way, right? 89.3% efficacy against what matters and what matters is severe disease. That will be an an enormously valuable data set. That was Dr. Nikolai Petrovsky again from Flinders University, and he was more curious on what can be learned from the greater number of failures in South Africa for both Johnson & Johnson and Novavax. He said unlike Moderna and Pfizer, who just had such few numbers of people on the vaccine getting the virus, these companies can now properly study what was going wrong. Was it that those 50% where the vaccine failed didn't generate antibodies against the South African virus? Did they not develop T cells? Is there some other variable that would explain why the vaccine failed in those individuals? Really, that data set's gonna be incredibly valuable to address those questions. 
In episode 4, we discussed a lot of the confusion and controversy surrounding AstraZeneca's vaccine results. The vaccine has now been authorised and distributed widely in the UK and several other countries. But now there's even more confusion around this vaccine. The EU has come out and said that it's not suitable for people over 65. If we look at the the data sets, what happened was that although they enrolled progressively older and older individuals, when they drew the cutoff for analysing their data to get their headline result, essentially they effectively excluded all those older people. When they presented their headline result overall of 70% effectiveness, that was overwhelmingly in people under the age of 55. So if you look at the trend in the data though, because they had a few older people, what you see is it looks like the vaccine has, has next to no effectiveness in those older people. Just on the trends, again, there weren't enough to say anything about the statistics. So just to clarify some confusion around this topic, so we can't say that it doesn't work in this group, but equally we can't say that it definitively does without more data, which we should have soon since they did enrol these patients. What we know is that typically, you know, vaccine effectiveness gets weaker as you go to older and older populations. And, you know, that is explained by the fact their immune systems are not as responsive. To be honest, I think the UU is completely correct in saying not only is there no evidence of effectiveness in the elderly, but the data itself was weak in the young at 70% overall protection and it looked like it was rapidly weakening towards the elderly population without analysing them. Remember that AstraZeneca still has to report results on its phase three trial in the US, which everyone has been waiting for after that original trial confusion. And that just might shed enough light on this over 65 group. I'm waiting like everyone else to see what data they have to see just how effective it is in the elderly. But in the meantime, I don't think it should be used in that population group if there are better vaccines available that have been shown to work in in the elderly subgroup. Now let's see what the update is on another once controversial adenoviral vector vaccine, Sputnik V from Russia. Now the paper was published in The Lancet that showed their results of their phase three study. And they did a three to one randomization of vaccine versus placebo, and they got very good results. Just a reminder that their adenoviral vector approach is using two different adenoviral vectors. The first is actually the same as Johnson Johnson's vector, AD26, and the second is AD5, both containing the genetic code of the spike protein. But their results found a 91.6% two-dose accuracy, and they showed a 72.8% single-dose accuracy in the intervals from 14 days after the first dose until the second dose, which is a short period of time. But those data are very promising, and their study, the way it was designed, the way it was randomized, and their outcomes was similar to the other well-designed trials. So I'm actually encouraged by those results and thinking that in spite of the fact that I think it was a very reckless decision for them to approve it back in August with the data they had then, on the basis of this data, it looks like it's it's quite a reasonable option and maybe competitive with the others that we're talking about. 
So it looks like after these results, more countries are open to distributing the once-shunned vaccine. Hungary has authorised it, India and Brazil are in the midst of authorising it, while there are even talks of the EU accepting it with all of its supply issues. Now, there's no talk of this being available in the US. I mean, the US doesn't really need it since it's bought enough doses for its entire population, vaccine nationalism. But Jeb said that should this go before the most rigorous FDA review, it should succeed with an EUA. So now that we have a good selection of vaccines that have been distributed widely over the last couple of months, a big question is what's the updated data on infections and transmissions? And what is that data telling us? I think that this is an issue that is tricky scientifically So this is a bit of a contentious topic, and the short answer is that we need more conclusive data. But Jeff actually has a blog called COVID-19 Data Science, and after crunching the numbers that are available, his conclusion is that it's almost certain that the vaccines are helping to protect against infection and transmission. It's hard to make it clear because the problem is that because of mainly logistical reasons and other limitations, Most of these studies were designed only to give PCR tests if symptoms were shown. Again, there were various reasons to do that. He explained that that, the reason it was so difficult to nail down conclusions on infection and transmission in the clinical trial results is because there isn't strong enough data on the asymptomatic people in the trials. But an important distinction that we statisticians are well aware of, but sometimes people get confused about, is that saying that There's not proof that the vaccines reduce infection and transmission is not the same thing as saying that there is proof that it does not. So after crunching the numbers and doing his own statistical analysis on the available clinical trial data, particularly looking at the asymptomatic patients, he was able to pull out some assumptions that the vaccines are somewhat reducing the probability of infection. In the Moderna study, they did give people a PCR test at the second dose. And if you look at the data from that, it's in the FDA report, there was a 66% reduction in asymptomatic cases in the vaccine group relative to the placebo. So he said for the vaccine to have no impact on reducing infections, then that asymptomatic group would have had to have been much higher. So it must be having some benefit. AstraZeneca also came out with some data on this, which supported this theory. So this press release that came out from AstraZeneca was really just updated data from those four studies. And because they had asymptomatic and symptomatic infections, they added those together. And they showed that if you put it all together, it was reducing total infections by 58%, which shows that it is reducing the number of infections, which is a a statistically valid result and is good. And I expect that the other vaccines would be even higher in that. So while this seems like good news, I asked him whether this changed his outlook on how a vaccinated person could be behaving around unvaccinated people. So I think it's still wise to follow the guidelines, to wear masks, still think about distancing. We don't know. There may be lesser efficacy in preventing asymptomatic infections. Even if it is reducing asymptomatic disease, we know that some people with asymptomatic disease still spread. So that definitely still sounds like a drag after all of that effort of getting a vaccine. But I asked him when he thought we could feel more relaxed when it came to thinking about transmission. We may get to a point where if the vaccines and natural immunity have kicked in enough around the world that we don't see it transmitting at a high rate anymore then that would be the time 
when we could completely stop doing those things. So now let's move away from the clinical trials and over to the real world. A big debate has been whether to delay the second dose in order to get people their first dose faster. This is mainly a discussion for the mRNA vaccines right now because they're supposed to be given either three or four weeks apart, but some are suggesting to wait as long as 12 weeks. The UK is doing this, but it has its critics. Well, scientifically, you learn not to go outside of where you have strong evidence, particularly when you're recommending a vaccine for hundreds of millions or billions of people, because you're basing it then on nothing other than supposition. He said there's always the risk of seeing something work in a few cases, but then when you put it to the test in large populations, it could have next to no effectiveness. And that could be dangerous when we're trying to be the most effective to quash this pandemic. If you want to extend the interval, you would have to do the same phase three study with two groups, one with a long interval, one with a short interval, and show that that doesn't impact adversely on the effectiveness of the vaccine. Dr Gandhi has a slightly different perspective based on practicalities. You can argue all you want about purity, but we're not getting this vaccine quickly out. And so now it's the practicality of abutting on the purity idea is to figure out how to make it more effective. And delaying the second dose not only has biological plausibility in the vaccine world, period. Like in childhood vaccines, you never want someone to come back early. If someone comes back late, you don't restart the whole vaccine series again. You just give MMR because they were six months late. That's fine. You just give this the next dose. This is a known phenomenon in vaccines that you don't want it too early. You don't care about too late. Second is that, of course, as you know, the the University of Oxford AstraZeneca trial showed that the longer you wait, actually the better the immunogenicity. So 12 weeks was better than nine weeks was better than six weeks because of the problem of the trial and what happened with the mistakes in it. It ended up being better to wait. So there's biological plausibility to wait. We got to get first doses in. And I completely agree with that approach. I also asked her about mixing and matching of vaccines. There were some media reports around the UK recommending mixing vaccines in their guidance, which has since been clarified. But I asked Dr. Gandhi what her thoughts were on that. We are still at the beginning of this. So the strict party line would be to say, of course, don't mix and match. They weren't studied that way. The UK guidance was completely taken out of context. The comment was, if you didn't know what you got the first time, then just give the second one what you have on hand. That's only if for some reason you didn't know what your first dose was. But they all work against the spike protein. And years and years later, we have mixed and matched hepatitis B vaccines, for example, if this is what we have on hand and you need to give the second dose and the third dose because hepatitis B is a third vaccine series, we don't actually care that much about the brand and really think about it too deeply because they all work on the same vaccine mechanism. So I actually do genuinely think this is a over commented upon point in the sense that right now you've got to do what the trial is showing you because that's how it was studied. But there are going to be a lot of quote off label ideas. It depends on how much of a of an adherent you are to the clinical trial design. I'm not actually because I think I do this in HIV medicine all the time. You think about what's best to expediently get it out, which is the biggest race that we have right now. And I don't care as much about the particular brand. But yeah, right now, party line, don't mix. 
So I was speaking to Dr. Thilika Ratner about this and the fact that this is probably somewhat already happening in clinical trials with people dropping out of ongoing trials and getting one of the authorised vaccines. And I asked her whether we'd be able to see the effects of any mixing of vaccines from the trial data. Within the trials, they are capturing those events, but people may not necessarily be reporting all of the instances in which they got that second vaccine without disclosure. And within a specific trial, I don't think there'll be enough instances for us to generate a lot of data to make strong conclusions. There is a study that they are starting in the UK where they're planning to match AstraZeneca and I believe it's the Pfizer vaccine to generate some data. And so I think within that controlled setting, it makes sense. So this has been discussed as something we might see later on where different brands or modalities could be used for boosters, but that still needs to be studied. At this point, she said that efficacy data for the first dose seemed pretty good, which would downplay the urgency to mix vaccines right now, because without data, we could be doing more harm than good. It's always a risk-benefit ratio, and at this point, I would say just giving one shot of the two-dose regimen makes more sense to me until we can generate those data. So next up, the question everyone still has on their minds, safety. Now, after the vaccines were authorised, there were all these cases of random deaths following the vaccine that were popping up in the media. Now, there is a fine line of reporting facts and looking at those facts within a greater context. And to be honest, the media and social media have been letting us down with a lot of unwarranted panic. A notable event were the 23 deaths that happened in Norway nursing homes that were in the end shown to have no link to the vaccine. I asked Jeff from a statistical point of view, how is it best to digest individual safety events when looking at the bigger picture? You have to think carefully about the reported adverse events and whether they are caused by the vaccine, looking clinically at the specific case, but also looking for excess deaths or excess adverse events beyond what you would expect in that population. The FDA has a database called the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, known as VAERS. Now, this is a database that anyone can access and enter safety info into. But really, it's a hot mess. And of course, people are looking at it, not really knowing how to process it and getting really scared. They have a disclaimer there that that emphasizes that these reports are not verified. So I could go and enter something in there that's not true and it would be on there. There's no assessment whatsoever on whether it was due to the vaccine or not. So things like heart attacks, like if we vaccinate the whole population, we're going to expect a certain number of heart attacks are going to happen on the day of vaccination just by random chance, even if it has nothing to do with the vaccine. If my you know, mother got the vaccine and had a heart attack that day, I'm going to put it in VAERS and I should because maybe it was caused by the vaccine. But if people just look at those numbers and consider them to be caused by the vaccine, they're going to with 100% probability be off because we know a lot of those are things that are coincidental. He explained that the whole point of this system is just for the authorities to see which safety events are popping up again and again and again so that they can then go and investigate them to see if it's a legitimate safety risk linked to the vaccine. And actually, thanks to this system, the severe allergic reactions to Pfizer's mRNA vaccine were flagged and then investigated immediately. So it does have a purpose, but not in the hands of amateurs. It's true that there could be more rare things in subgroups where the vaccines are not safe or something could happen a little bit more long term. So we need to watch out for these things. But if we're not careful, we're just going to chicken little ourselves out of 
a potential safe and effective vaccine that could really play a big part in getting the pandemic under control. So now let's look into the future, and the future is children. While children have not been the focus of this pandemic, many people still have questions like, are they still at risk? Could they be asymptomatic spreaders? And should schools really be closed? And what's the urgency on clinical trials in children? I spoke to Dr. Saul Faust, Professor of Pediatric Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Southampton. And he's leading a bunch of pediatric vaccine trials over the next few months through a few national research networks in the UK. All of the studies are starting in the teenagers. And then when we've got some initial data in the teenagers, we'll move down to younger children. So probably to start with secondary school, then primary school, and then possibly if the safety data is good, going down younger than that, because the regulators, the FDA in America, the MHRA in the UK and EMA in Europe would would like to see data for the youngest children as well. Now, trials in children are going to be completely different to the ones that were done in adults. And Dr. Foss explained that it's really a case of finding the right tolerable dose in children that generates an immunological response that will correspond with what they think will offer sufficient protection. Those are the data we need in order to deploy the vaccines in children, because if you generate an immune response in the same way as an adult with antibodies and TMB cells, the vaccines will work against covid We've just got to make sure we get the dose right. The UK is starting studies in children with AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson's vaccines first, and other vaccines will follow. Meanwhile, Pfizer's US trial in 12 to 15-year-olds was fully enrolled in January, and the company has said it will start trials in 5 to 11-year-olds soon. There'll be much smaller studies than in adults because we don't need to prove they work against COVID if you get the immune response. But we need to study enough children for each vaccine in each age group to know the right dose and the minor side effect profile. And of course, to check there's no major side effects in children, but we don't expect there to be, just like there haven't been in adults. I asked him about the timelines for the trials and what the level of urgency was for these trials to recruit and complete alongside the mass vaccinations for the rest of the population. I think there's no great rush to immunise children because children aren't dying as a result of this pandemic. Some children, very rarely, are getting this inflammatory condition. He explained that this inflammatory syndrome presents in maybe one in 5,000 children who actually get COVID and they don't need treatment. But I told him that there was still a common question that keeps cropping up, and that's even if children don't get sick, could they still be super spreaders to adults and the more vulnerable? We've been trying to rebut this phrase super spreader for children for some time. Children are not behaving like they do in flu. In flu, children act, as you say, as super spreaders. One child infects lots more people. And that's why we have a flu immunisation programme in Britain to immunise our children, to protect the elderly. Uh, And that's an annual programme. It's been absolutely clear in every single study of different types of study from around the world has shown the same thing. He said that primary school children are less likely to transmit the virus symptomatically while they don't really see asymptomatic spread in these kids. And even in secondary schools, it's been clear that transmission is not accelerated in these children. And when you see cases spike in schools, it's usually because you're seeing a rise in the community. We will recruit the smaller numbers we need much more quickly than you might imagine. So it won't take very long to generate the data 
And so where are we now? April, May, June, July. By the middle to the end of the summer, we'll have the results starting to appear from the different age groups. And at that point, the regulator will decide just how big further studies need to be. When's my best guess we would be deploying in children? Probably end of the year, beginning of next year. So many of you started tuning into this because you wanted some better context on the future. When can we start to do normal things again? I know for a lot of people listening, a big factor is going to be when can we travel and have open borders again? Here's Dr. Mary Louise McLaws from New South Wales University and advisor to the WHO on her thoughts on the world's future. Do you think that we're going to have to have like mandates and things like that? People are sort of wondering whether in order to get on a plane today, will you have to show your vaccination card (laughs) saying that you've got the vaccine? Absolutely. It's already happening. One of the issues, though, is that this isn't going to make everything perfect and it's not going to make the virus and the threat go away. So you may have the vaccine, but as I mentioned, we may carry a silent COVID infection and we may transmit it. So we'll come home. We've had a lovely holiday or business meeting and we might be bringing back with us an infection, a very mild one, but it could be a different strain might get into our elderly population if we have the elderly living with us and they haven't responded well to the vaccine. AstraZeneca may only give us 70% protection. There might be 30% of us in, let's say, a country still at risk of acquiring it. Now, we don't know if that's the case, so we may still require a step-down approach to So she has this whole master plan mapped out in her head and it involves so many steps that she thinks is necessary for us to be travelling responsibly. That includes a rapid antigen test before getting onto the plane, having your vaccine passport with you to get onto the plane, another rapid antigen test when you get home, and then possibly a home quarantine with an electronic band that your family might also have to agree to, just to be 100% sure that you haven't brought it back with you. Now this really seems a bit extreme and while this might fly in countries like Australia or places in Asia, I can't really see this flying in the US or Europe, but I get it. She's really looking at it from a standpoint of guaranteed success and getting to the end quicker. She's looking at knocking out all of the variables, which to be honest, most of the world hasn't done throughout this whole pandemic. So we may need to start to adjust until this virus starts playing nicely and just becomes an annoying, mild case that doesn't start killing people and doesn't cause great morbidity. I mean, long COVID is something you don't want 20 to 39-year-olds to go into their middle age with. And you mentioned all of those measures, you know, traveling, antigen testing, quarantine. Yeah, I think it's going to involve a lot of steps and cooperation there from like all parts of the globe. But in your view, and I know this is a really hard question, it's probably the billion dollar question, but how long would that have to be done for? Like, are we talking like, you know, a five year time of COVID, that like this is our war period and this is what we have to just get through until we <laughs> are confident? Or Yeah, you know. I think that single nations can't just make this decision because when I look at the numbers from an epidemiologist perspective, an outbreak management perspective, I get really quite 
disillusioned at the nationalism of countries that haven't, quite frankly, met their responsibility, not just to their own citizens, but to the global citizens. And so leadership has to accommodate how the virus uses its traditions and behaviours and help stop the spread so we can all get back together as a global community. I don't know how long this will go on for and how long the authorities and the community will put up with this. So we have to start getting very smart and our vaccine manufacturers have to rapidly get on to developing a vaccine that will not only protect us from disease, but will protect us from infection, and then we can get back to life. So that's it for the final episode of the COVAX Files. Thanks to my guests, Dr. Jeffrey Morris, Dr. Monica Gandhi, Dr. Nikolai Petrovsky, Dr. Gayani Thilakaratna, Dr. Saul Faust, and Dr. Mary Louise McLaws for giving me their precious time and incredible insight on this episode. I also want to thank everyone at Resonate Recordings for helping Kent and I to launch this podcast series. And a special thanks goes to sound engineer Adam Townsell for his amazing work polishing up these episodes every week and selecting the awesome music and sound effects. And finally, a big thanks goes to you, all of you who have tuned in throughout this series week after week wanting to digest complex and important information. This podcast series was a small and independent production, and given my dismal social media presence, the expectations were quite low. But I've been amazed to see the COVAX files reach so many different people, and actually in every continent except Antarctica. And I've also loved hearing all of the great feedback from the different walks of life, from the lay listeners to the experts and professors, all saying that this series was enjoyable, but also informative and most importantly, actionable. So for that, I truly thank you and it means the world to me. So thanks for coming with me on this journey. It's been a true privilege to bring this information to your ears. And we're going to see how both the pandemic and the vaccines evolve. And if there is a need for season two, we may just do it. So please subscribe. And if you've enjoyed listening to the series, please review us on Apple Podcasts. It actually helps a lot with getting the series in front of a lot more people who might be interested in learning more about the vaccines. But right now, from executive producer Ken Collier and myself, Sarani Fernando, is to take care, stay sane, and stay safe. <laughs>